Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bound down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations. The five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians, and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal, Hermon, as far as Lebo, Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, 
and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For those of you for whom English is not your first language, schmolatry is a made-up word. It is not real. It is a way of making fun of something and dismissing it. And that is what I intend to do using God's word. I don't know if you have ever puzzled about your own life, how it is you can go from singing glorious gospel truths like we've been singing today, engaged with God in your own spirit, worshiping him, thankful for him, rejoicing in him on Sunday, and then find yourself embroiled in some ridiculous sin by Tuesday. How is it that the nation of Israel could see God's great deliverances being brought out through the Red Sea, the 40 years of God's provision in the wilderness, brought to the cusp of the promised land, delivered in their first battles? How is it they could see all of that and go from worshiping Yahweh to worshiping Baal, an idol? Well, imagine you were born in the desert. Uh, Israel's been wandering around for five years or so. You're born all you have ever known as a former slave family descendant uh, in a nomadic tribe whose food and water has been supernaturally supplied for your entire 35 years of wandering in the wilderness. You now stand on the threshold of that new land that you're about to go in and conquer and farm. Because the moment you touch the border, the manna stops, the quail stops, the water out of the rock stops. And now you live in a foreign land and you haven't farmed a day in your life. But your slave has. And so he's talking with you. He's been born in the land. He knows how to grow stuff. He knows how to store it for winter. He knows how to prepare and provide for one's family. So you lean on this now enforced laborer to teach you. And as he does, one particular day, he offhandedly mentions that, you know, back when this land was mine, I really had bumper crops when I just stopped by the little temple to Baal there in town, left a little food for the Baal. And you think, oh, that's, that's interesting. And then a few weeks later, he says, you know, uh, we were having trouble having kids, and then we had like twins, triplets, twins in a row uh, because I went to the big Baal temple in the big city. And, um, man, that's really something. Uh, you go there, and you can buy yourself some time with a prostitute, and it's amazing the effects that that had on my life. Never mind the fact that he's telling you all of this as a conquered slave, <laughs> which should have been your first tip that this is not good advice. But you begin to wonder if it might be useful to drop off a little something at the neighborhood temple just to cover your bases. Maybe plan a little trip to the big city without your wife. 
And before we go any further, let's drop into this spot in Judges, Judges chapter 2. The book of Judges is the history of God's deliverers, God's saviors, the ones that he provided for his people. And let's try to understand how is it that Israel could descend so rapidly into idolatry. So Judges 2 verse 6, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. So they're standing on the edge of the promised land. Israel takes out a map. They say, this is going to be your part, tribe number one. This will be your part, tribe number five. And they kind of plot out where everybody's going to go. And Joshua begins this process of eviction of the current residents and resettlement by the Lord's people. And Joshua stays faithful all of his days. However, those days come to an end. So after that very moving speech by Joshua that we read last week, where he challenges Israel to pick, are you going to serve Yahweh or are you going to serve the idols? We read in verse 7, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Heresh, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. Now, those, that little paragraph is there. It's there to stress to you what faithful, godly living looks like. There's a couple of things there. He was buried in the land that was promised to him. That's, that's fulfilled promise. He, he lived to be 110 years old. That's a sign of God's blessing. And so Joshua is being held out as a, as a kind of model Israelite. This is what everybody is supposed to do. But Joshua eventually dies. And the men who fought and conquered with him, they die. Verse 10, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So a generation, just one generation after Joshua's death, it can be said of the nation, nobody left has an honest, meaningful relationship with Yahweh, with the true God. Kids, I want to talk to you for a moment. You need to grow up understanding something. Grace Fellowship Church may not be here by the time you turn 33 years old. Or worse, it might be here, but only in name, not in godly practice. Now you say, 33, that's, that's a long time. I remember when I was little, 33 sounded like ancient. Well, trust me, it comes faster than you might expect. And do you know what's going to make this church full of people who know the Lord? Well, in part, it's going to be if you kids grow up to know the Lord. Some of you are finishing up high school. You're starting to plan and think about what you're going to do with your life. When I was 18 years old, I had a strong desire. I couldn't really explain it to do something for the Lord. God had saved me three years before that. I was young and I was dumb, but I knew how to pray. And, and God directed me to a place where I could learn the Bible. That meant I had to leave my home. I moved to California. There were lots of bills to pay. I had to trust him to supply the money. I had to work my tail off on some, some greasy campus diner. But God made a way. And when I came back to pastor in Toronto, I could only find a few churches 
churches like ours. Not many of them were strong and healthy. In fact, most of them were weak and struggling. And yet over time, God in his abundant grace, he let us start Grace Fellowship Church, which has never been a perfect church and it never will be a perfect church, but it is always a place that has preached Jesus and him crucified. And, and through all 23 years of our life, we're, we're trying, sometimes more successful than others, but trying to live lives of obedience to God. Now, kids, I'm still talking to you, believe it or not. Because you need to know that one day I'm going to die. Unless the Lord returns, then we'll all see him. But in all likelihood, I'm going to die. That might be tomorrow. Or it might be 10 years from now, or even 15 years from now, like when you turn 33. And do you know what this church is going to need in order to thrive? It's going to need men and women who have a true and real relationship with God. It's going to need young men who are sitting there right now and thinking, I think the Lord might want me to be an elder in this church or some other church someday. And if you're sitting there and you're finishing up high school or you're just about to start high school, I don't really care, but you're thinking as a young man, I wonder if the Lord would have me to be a pastor, then pray and act, my young friend. Our brother Nick Challies had that in his mind as a very young man. And he prayed and he leapt out in faith. And I can tell you, because I've known him, knew him for basically all his life, that Nick was not naturally a risk taker. But he was supernaturally obedient. And God had other plans for Nicky, right? And we trust the Lord with that. But if you're sitting there as a young Nick, don't be afraid to expect great things from God and then to try them, to see what the Lord might do. Whatever you do, kids, make sure you're not part of the next gen, the next generation who abandons the Lord, who knows all about him but doesn't love him and doesn't serve him. If you want to guarantee that Grace Fellowship Church forgets God, I'm going to tell you exactly how to do it. Here's the path for failure. <laughs> it's summed up in one word, and that word is idolatry. Idolatry. Remember the, the, that, the challenge that Joshua laid down for Israel. Choose this day whom you are going to serve. Are you going to serve Yahweh or are you going to serve anything or anyone else? That's the question you and I are facing every single day of our lives. Idolatry defined as this, a heart allegiance to anything or anyone other than the real God. Idolatry is a heart allegiance to anyone or anything other than the real God. That might be to your spouse, might be to your bank account balance, it might be to your career it might be an allegiance to your parents and their approval of you. It might be your allegiance to leisure time and vacations. You and I can make an idol out of anything. And at its heart, this is important to understand, idolatry is selfishness. It is covetousness. It's trying 
to manipulate a thing or a person to make you give what you must have to be satisfied, to be happy, to be content in life. And that is why Paul writes, put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you. This is Colossians 3.5, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It is why Paul would write to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10.14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You spot it, you run. And for Israel, the most accessible and tempting idols were Baals and Ashtaroth. And that leads us to the first thing you need to understand about idolatry. Number one is this. Idolatry always leads to misery. Verse 11. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned Yahweh, the God of their fathers, had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them and they provoked Yahweh to anger. They abandoned Yahweh and served the Baals and Ashtaroth. You know why sometimes when I read the text where it says Lord and capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, you notice that in the text? That's, that's the, the, the word Yahweh. It's God's proper name. It's distinguishing God from all other supposed gods. Yahweh, he's Israel's God. And notice in verse 13, they abandoned Yahweh and served the Baals and Ashtaroth. Now, the author there speaks of the Baals and the Ashtaroth, which is the plural of Ashtaroth. So the, both are plural here, meaning there are many versions of these two gods. And that's why you sometimes read things like um, the Baal of such and such a city, Baal of Peor. Well, it's, it's that version of Baal. That makes nailing down the exact aspects of Baal worship a bit tricky. It's a little, bit, a little bit like trying to define Roman Catholicism. If you go to Mexico City and then you go to New York City, you'll get two very different versions of Roman Catholicism. But there are common elements of Baal worship that are helpful to understand. Baal was a fertility god. He was the one you'd go to if you want more crops, more babies, more property. And Baal's consort, his on-again, off-again lover is Asherah, and so you'd bring offerings or sacrifices to one of their temples or whatever in order to get them to love each other and produce for you. It's, that's what it is. And if you're really, really into it, then in some versions of this idolatry, uh, you would uh, bring your food and you'd buy some time with a temple prostitute in order to show Mr. Baal what you need him to do for you. There's even some evidence to suggest that some variations of Baal worship included sacrificing your own children in order to force him to help you against your enemy or to somehow rid you of a predicament that you were in. And you may be sitting there tempted to think, well, that's antiquated and that's old and it's bizarre. But might I suggest to you that all these forms of idolatry are present in our own day, regardless of how sanitized and supposedly non-religious we have made them. You may not hire a temple prostitute, but if you live for personal satisfaction, you might be tempted to be sexually immoral with pictures on a screen. 
You may not drop off food offerings at your local Asherah statue, but if you worship peace, you might run your credit cards up on a vacation you can't afford. You may not slaughter your own baby at that Baal temple, but if you bow down to the approval of others, you might be tempted to tell your girlfriend to end that life in her womb before it's born because of what your parents and your friends might say. In other words, you may not be calling them Baal and Ashtaroth, but they're smiling at each other behind the curtain as you bow down to worship them. And just like the man who tries pornography in order to be happy, or the woman who destroys her financial future to find one week of leisure, or the couple who ends the life they created in order to avoid the disapproval of others, the end result is the same as if you were leaving meals at the foot of the Asherah pole or hiring prostitutes at Baal's temple. The end result is always misery. Especially if you are a follower of Yahweh. Because not only will those false gods never deliver on the joy that they promise, but if you're a Christian, you're going to face the active opposition of God to your folly. Verse 14. So the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of Yahweh was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as Yahweh had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. And they were in terrible distress. This is maybe a good time to consider what are some of your idols of choice? What do you turn to when life is discouraging, hard, frustrating? Who do you depend on instead of depending on the Lord? Consider this. If you're a Christian, God loves you so much that he will actively frustrate your attempts to find life in a fake God. Said another way, if you're choosing to love your idols, God will make your life miserable. <laughs> I feel really bad saying that, but that's the truth. God loves you so much that when you turn from him, and you worship some idol, he will frustrate your life, he will make your life misery. For Israel, he, he warned them, he swore to them, that's exactly what he was gonna do. If they turn to idols, he's gonna turn them over to plunderers, and the plunderers come, and they only further expose what is really in their hearts. We'll see more of this in a moment, but for now, hang on to this one fact. Idolatry leads to misery. Maybe that'll help you in your own fight. Just have that one memorized. Idolatry leads to misery. However, God being God, we read this in verse 16. Then Yahweh raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So <laughs> he sends the plunderers and then he sends the deliverers from the plunderers. 
Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of Yahweh, and they did not do so. Whenever Yahweh raised up judges for them, the Lord was, Yahweh was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for Yahweh was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died and turned back, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Now, you need, to, you need to just see something here. Notice the fact that even though God is generously sending judges, he's sending deliverers. We're going to read about all of them as we move our way through this book. Even though God is sending these judges, it's not because Israel is asking for them. They did not listen to their judges. As soon as the political problem was solved, they intensified their sinful idolatry. Whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. Each successive generation dug into their idolatry more than the one before it. And that was after Yahweh had just delivered them again. That means they kept going back to idols that promised life and delivered death, and that is misery. Have you ever heard of Misery Bay on Manitoulin Island? Apparently, when the cartographers from Canada were plotting out that region of the world, they were on a boat and they pulled into Misery Bay where a farmer had been working the land and had been working there all day, and they said to him, where are we? And he said, I'm in misery. And they're like, okay. And so they called it Misery Bay. It's actually quite beautiful. There's a provincial park there. You can go there. Does your life feel, though, like you're drowning in Misery Bay? Perhaps if you are feeling miserable and perhaps if you are feeling like you're in the midst of misery, it is because you are bowing down to idols and God in his mercy is frustrating your life. And you're groaning like they did in verse 18. Note here that groaning is not a word of repentance. Maybe there's been a sad time in your life where you sinned badly and now you're sitting there and the results of your sin, you damaged somebody's property or you harmed another person, whatever it is, and you, you hate the situation that you're in, but you don't hate it enough to say, I was wrong, please forgive me. You just hate it enough to groan. Oh. This is the same word used by Moses when he wrote of that earlier generation in slavery in Egypt. Exodus 2.24 says, God heard their groaning. And this groaning in their misery reached up to Yahweh's ears. But it was not God's mercy in response to their request for help that moved God to save them. Exodus 6 says, moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. I've remembered my covenant. What moved God in response to the groaning of Israel in their groaning, is, is, in their misery, is the fact that God had made covenant with them. Whether slaves in Egypt or idolaters in Canaan, they weren't asking God for help, but he gave it anyway. And that tells us a lot about God and his faithfulness, and it tells us a lot about how 
absolutely lost we would be if we were left to ourselves. We need a savior. What about you? You've been running after your idols? Are there acts of sexual immorality, murder, theft, self-worship that plague your conscience even though God sent a, a delivery for you and got you out of it, but the act and the guilt is still there. I don't think the solution is entirely to tell God that you're never going to do it again. That's a, that's a good thing to say. But in part, the solution is coming clean with God, and often that involves coming clean with other human beings. Don't ask me to explain it, but I know my Bible says, confess your sins to one another. And there is something about bringing our sins out into the light of reality, getting them out of our heads and expressing them to a brother in the Lord. Maybe for you it is theft or abortion or sexual immorality. These are not the unforgivable sins. And the misery that you are perhaps living with because of actions in your past, you can leave that behind you. If, if you've got things that you're ashamed of, tucked away in some mental closet, maybe today is a day to confess that, to repent, to get right with the Lord. You don't deal with sin by stuffing it down and hiding it. The, the only way to kill idolatry is to destroy its power. And until sin is confessed and repented from, I worry that it continues to whisper enticing temptations in your ear. So I tell you, with all of Judges 2 standing behind me, all idolatry leads to misery. But there's an escape. This takes me to number two. Exposure to idols is a test to see if you will obey God's word. It's a test. The exposure just to the idols. That word test occurs three times in chapter 2, verse 22, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 4. I'm going to take the first and the last of those, 2.22 and 3.4, then I'll come back to 3.1 in the next point. So look at verse uh, 20 of chapter 2. The anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. He said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I'll no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, by these other nations, whether they will take care to walk in the way of Yahweh as their fathers did or not. So Yahweh left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Go down to chapter 3, verse 3. Uh, we'll go to verse uh, 4. That they were, these nations that were listed in verse 3 were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of Yahweh, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So God is saying... I have sovereignly left, I have willfully decided to leave some Canaanites in the land. And that's important. God is permitted to allow circumstances in order to test his people. 
without at all being responsible for the sinfulness of those circumstances. I think that's really important when you come to understand our relationship to sin and idolatry. Paul speaks in Romans chapter 7 about the sin that dwells in me. Sometimes he refers to it as the flesh. Not talking about your physical body, but he's speaking about that inward sin principle. Whatever it is in you that's still there, that's, that's drawn toward sin. And we might ask the Lord, isn't it kind of unfair of you, unkind of you, to let this situation exist? Wouldn't it have been better if at the moment you saved us, you removed that inward sin principle all the way so we would never sin again? And the Lord says, no, <laughs> uh, it would not be better. Brothers and sisters, our problem is not our exposure to idols. Our problem is our obedience to idols. And your flesh, in the presence of whatever idol entices you, provides you a test, an examination who do you really love? Who will you really obey? Will it be the Lord or will it be you? God tested Abraham when he told him to sacrifice Isaac. God tested Israel when he led them out into the wilderness where there was no water to drink. God tested Israel for 40 years when he led them around a foodless wilderness providing for them. And it's in this sense that God left some Canaanites in the land to see, Israel, are you going to believe and obey my word? Are you going to choose to walk in my ways? What about you? Do, you? do you answer God the way Aaron answered Moses after his idolatry, Aaron's idolatry? You remember Aaron? Uh, Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. And Aaron says, hey, everybody bring me your gold. And hey, let's put it in a thing and heat it up. And hey, what do you know? I built this smelting operation. And hey, here's some tools and I'm carving it. And hey, it's a golden calf. This is Yahweh. Let's party. And when Moses comes down from the mountain, shows up and asks Aaron, what on earth is going on? This is how Aaron answers. You know the people, they're set on evil. So I said to them, let anyone, uh, let any who have gold, take it off. So they gave it to me, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Out came the calf. I have no idea how this happened. Friend, is that how you answer God when God exposes your idolatry? Well, it wasn't really me. I, 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 you know, I was just minding my own business. When out came this calf, when, when I flipped to the wrong channel, when I, when I walked into this particular establishment I shouldn't be in. Friend, when the idol passes you by, God is providing you a test. And the idol and your flesh will conspire against you to fail that test. But if you fail the test, here's what you just have to understand in the Christian life. You've got to get your head around this. If you fail the test, that was your choice. Nobody made you do it. James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, 
He will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So these tests come along our paths in order to reveal who we truly love. You will be helped, I think, so much in your Christian life if you start to see these tests and trials and temptations as a test, like a challenge, a way to demonstrate your loyalty and love for Jesus. Maybe you're not an athlete, and that's fine, but there is a sense where all of us are runners, and we have a race to run, and in God's providence, sometimes, oftentimes, the track of that race goes uphill with these enticing little rest stations on either side of the road. But like Madame Folly in, in Proverbs chapter 9, those rest stations lead to hell, not to sustenance. You know, defeating idolatry is defeating pragmatism. It's looking to God's word and saying, I'm exhausted, this is a battle, how long is it gonna last? That looks enticing, he says no, I say I agree. And keeping my blinders on and going and going and going. I'm defeating the pragmatism of, ah, just a couple minutes over here. Just a couple minutes over there. And choosing to obey God's word and to keep running uphill when it looks so much smarter to stop, grab a cup of water from Baal's rest stop. That takes me to number three, which is this. Defeating idolatry is a victory that is going to strengthen you for future battles and future victories. Judges 3, verse 1. These are the nations that Yahweh left to test Israel by them. That is, in all Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan, it was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. So when you worship your idol, you fail the test. When we believe God's word and walk in God's way, we pass the test. And that test you got to see it, it is in many ways like going to war. It is a holy war. Israel is being tested by the presence of these enemies in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. And you're always making something clear here. One of the reasons for their testing was to keep them battle ready especially for the times when, in their case, outside nations would try to invade. Because they're battling in their own land, they're battle ready. In World War II, it was the soldiers who had fought in the North African campaign who came up into the boot of Italy. They were the most successful soldiers. All the new recruits were dying at terrible mortality rates. Why? Because the, the men who had fought in North Africa, they'd shown up green and, and you know, uh, 
unable. They didn't know what they were doing, but they lived through it. They learned. Why? Because they learned how to fight. They became battle-hardened. They learned the tricks of the trade, and they learned the tricks of their enemy. And they didn't get that skill and knowledge from a book. They didn't get it at basic training. They got it from actually going to war. Brothers, sisters, you just have to understand. I, I could run seminars for you on the spiritual warfare, and it'll do you no good because at the end of the day, I mean, it might do you some good, but, but at the end of the day, you've got to fight. You're a soldier in the Lord's army. You've got to fight. You've got to defeat your idols. Nobody's going to do that for you. The Christian life is a Christian warfare. And you need to start seeing some victories against some of your idols if you're going to grow in spiritual strength. All of us have rest stops at the side of the road that are calling our names, but these are not comfort stations. These are death camps. And the only way to stay out of them is to move through life like Joshua did. Go back to Joshua. Joshua looks at the land full of the enemy and goes, that's my land. Um, I'm going to take it. I'm going to live in it, and they're going to bury me in it. Don't know how the Lord's going to do it, but here we go. And he does it, and that's exactly what happened because God had told him, and he's just obeying what God told him to do. You have all kinds of commands in the New Testament. Did you know that? You don't even have to go to the Old Testament. Start in the New if you like. All kinds of commands about how to live as a Christian. Go to Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6. Um, go to Romans chapter 12, 13, 14, 15. Uh, you just go pick a book. You've got all kinds of commands there. And God is looking at you, and he's saying, do these things. Are you going to do them? You have a love that hopes all things, believes all things. When your brother sins against you, are you going to go to your brother instead of gossiping to your neighbor? Are you just going to do what God says? When the idols pop up on your screen or in your life or in your world, are you going to turn the other way? Are you going to run? Young man, you're going to be like young Joseph in the clutches of an evil woman offering herself who ran, <laughs> left his cloak behind. I'm out of here because I will not sin against the Lord. Joshua was quite an example for us. Do you know the name Joshua is where the name Jesus comes from? It means God saves, Yahweh saves. And that's good because you and I both know that as successful as we might be in fighting our idols, as battle-hardened and as wise as we might grow, that's not what's going to get us to heaven, is it? It is only the finished saving work of the greater Joshua who can take us into the final promised land. How did Israel do at their test? Well, not very good. The Lord had told them, Exodus chapter 20, you shall have no other gods before me. That seems pretty clear. They failed that test, Judges 2.13. They abandoned Yahweh, served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. The Lord had told them, Deuteronomy 7, you shall not intermarry with the Canaanites, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. But they failed that test too, Judges 3.6. Their daughters they took to themselves for wives and their own daughters they gave to their sons and they served their gods. Brothers and sisters, the Lord has told us to do many things as well. And we have failed many of our tests as well, which is why we praise God for Jesus Christ, the idol crusher. 
And it's why it'll be our delight to meet with Jesus at his table during our lunch. The Lord's Supper is for Christians. And the the reason is because we come to that table to rejoice in what Christ has done for us and for what he has in store for us. But we also come to that table like beat up and bloodied soldiers returning from the front lines of battle, dirty with our failures and our fears, wounded from our idolatrous thoughts and words, and yet we still come. And we come because he calls us to to come. Just like the song says, come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. Powerful pity. Oh, friend, if you've never come to that Savior, then today's the day to come. Repent from your sins. Run away from the hell that you deserve. And run into the strong arms of Jesus Christ. He's going to forgive you if you will ask him. And he is always only a single prayer away. There are no magic formulas to come to him. There is only a broken heart that says, I'm a sinner in need of a savior that calls out to him and asks him to save. You can be 15, you can be 51, doesn't matter. You can be 150 if that's possible. You can come to Christ. For those of you who are already Christians here at Grace Fellowship Church this morning, we will conclude our service. We're going to break things down, eat some lunch together, and then meet with Christ at his table. Our friends at Park Royal Bible Church will be taking the Lord's Supper together right after this service. But all of us, all of us who know the Lord, we need to come to Jesus as those who know that we need a Savior, we have a Savior, and we love our Savior. Let's pray together.